listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You're listening to the NASP Podcast. This specialty pharmacy podcast is a collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy and the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The mission of the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy is to improve specialty pharmacy practice by promoting continuing professional education and certification of specialty pharmacists while advocating for public policies that ensure patient access to specialty medications. As the healthcare industry's leading podcast dedicated to the pharmacy profession, the Pharmacy Podcast Network is proud to bring our listeners the NASP podcast in collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. Hey, there's a new article out. It's titled The FDA Braces for Looming Boom in Cell and Gene Therapy Submissions. This is through Biospace, um, biospace.com. I want to tell you how excited I am. My name is Todd Yuri, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. We are dedicated to pharmacists leading in healthcare, in medication management, medication safety, and expertise. Rare disease, specialty pharmacy. We just got back from Assembia 2023. Uh, Mike Baldzicki from Acela Health has been a partner of ours in helping to build a podcast series that drills down into the very intricacies and specialties within the market, within this specific target, um, within specialty pharmacy. And I look to experts, it's not me. I am the distributor. I like to amplify you, put social media around your messaging so that people are getting the right information from the right sources, which is our healthcare providers, our pharmacists. So Mike, it is great to have you back for episode two, digging a little deeper into the insights of gene cell therapy and the market challenges I am excited that you have led this, and I just want to thank you again, Mike, for for doing this for us. No, Todd, thank you. And again, it's a pleasure to be back uh, on this uh, platform uh, with PPN in partnership with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy, kicking off episode two of the Biopharmaceutical Educational Podcast Workshop Series, one of six that we're doing with PPN and NASP. And again, that article that you mentioned couldn't really align even better with the two speakers I have today, uh, Michelle Rice, CEO of Michelle Rice and Associates, and Dr. Ken Mankowski, leading neurologist specialist in MS uh, and also founder of CNS and, and the MS Institute. But you know, today's episode, episode two, will really focus on that. You know, insights into the gene cell therapy market and challenges facing uh, market entrance and commercialization with those companies. And you know, I really you know, want to focus with these two speakers around the continued advances uh, that obviously gene and cell therapy bring in transforming the pharmacy uh, ecosystem. But again, as we see with recent launches in the gene cell therapy, it's really y- yielded some mixed results in getting the right therapy to the right patients. And I think Michelle uh, Rice, you know, with her background in advocacy and working with pharma, along with Dr. Ken, M- Ken Mikowski as a practicing neurologist, and working with pharma and other you know, healthcare uh, entities uh, bring a unique perspective of how it, it's really imperative when we consider innovative ways for a product to be launched, especially around gene cell therapy and patients, <laughs> ensuring that the that the market, the product, the company itself is fully prepared for effective uh, launch and enables access to these medications for patients. Uh, so with that, Michelle, why don't you say hello and introduce yourself? 
Well, thank you, uh, Mike. And my name is Michelle Rice. I have been a patient advocate for the last 33 years, um, working both on the state and uh, national levels. I have uh, children with a chronic disease. I also have chronic disease myself. And so this is a topic that really has been front and center in the advocacy space for the last several years and and obviously uh, very much so right now. And so I think that, you know, the the big focus that I see is the need for the pharmaceutical companies, the patient advocates and the payers and clinicians to really come together to have the conversations around how do you get this to the right patient at the right time um, and, uh, you know, how are we going to reimburse for these products? And so I would like to go ahead and and pass the, the mic on to Dr. Minkowski to share um, a little bit of his background as well. Well, thank you. And I, and I couldn't agree more, Michelle. So starting practice 20, 25 years ago in the world of multiple sclerosis, you know, we sort of got away with this independent approach where physicians did what they did and pharmacists did what they did and these the payers and specialty pharmacies and PBMs are sort of most physicians didn't even understand what was going on behind the scenes, let alone how we could collaborate and benefit. And, and I think to some extent, when medications were simpler and molecules were simpler, maybe we got away with that. Uh, I don't think every patient felt that way, but I think it was uh, the way we did things. You advanced forward in the world of neurology, immunology as they collide. Now we're talking about much more complex molecules, biologics, monoclonal antibodies. So we start to see these worlds come together where we need each other and, and patients really need a shared voice. They, it doesn't help for them to get a different message from everyone. And now when we talk about cell and gene therapy, we can't make mistakes. We, we can't work independently. It won't work for the patient. We need to know and lean on each other and have the shared voice. So through starting... I think on a number five of, of MS centers, where we tried to uh, create a comprehensive approach within our walls, we've just seen the complexity of these therapies, the higher, bigger upside to these therapies, and just the importance that providers, whether it be physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and pharmacists, really need a shared voice and a shared approach and start using the money is that are available in program development and making sure that patients are well taken care of. No, and I think you both bring up two uh, you know key points for me. And and, and again, something in, in my career, I hold dear to my heart of where you know, I continue, you know, with any organization, I, I put the patient first. And even with uh, Pharmacy Podcast Network, PPN and NASP, you know, it's always about the patient, especially around dealing with specialty pharmacy uh, products and therapy classes. You know, I, I think my first question to you to you both and starting with Michelle is obviously there is a clear need to improve access, especially around the continued advancements we see in gene cell therapy and just improve access uh, besides obviously that coordination of care uh, with the uh, reduced complexity that we see in these type of therapies besides uh, investments of, of stakeholders. What's your perspective on the capability gaps and challenges of just standardizing workflows with manufacturers and all the stakeholders involved. I, again, I, I think we're really not even there yet to understand all the intricate parts needed to coordinate 
uh, appropriate, you know, I call it patient journey mapping, but working with physicians like Dr. Ken Mikowski that are experts in, uh, you know, therapeutical areas to advocacy groups, to manufacturers, to other uh, key stakeholders that are going to be involved and have to be involved. Michelle, I'd, let, I'd go to you first. Well, you've kind of hit on my uh, passion point uh, that I've really kind of kept as the center of everything that that I've done over the last 33 years, which is, of course, obviously the patient first, but but is also about the key to any success is going to be done through collaboration and through partnership. And uh, I think Dr. Mankowski said it very well that, you know, it used to be kind of everybody was kind of siloed doing their own thing and it just... It either worked or it didn't work. <laughs> and, and you know, we would respond if it didn't work. And so I think that in, you know, with the cost of healthcare in general, with the bifurcation of how healthcare benefits are, are, are delivered, it's even more important now for, I think, for there to be communication before something happens, right, before decisions are being made. I think we've been talking about cell and gene therapies for quite a while now, knowing that something was going to have to be different in the way that they were reimbursed, in the way that they were delivered, in in, in the follow-up that needs to be done with the, with the patients. And, <clears throat> but it's here, and I still don't think it's been fully worked out, right? So I, I think that it is really imperative for all the different stakeholders to understand the other person's point of view, but also under that understand that as it relates to the patient journey. I think a lot of times we know what the disease is. Um, and I think there's a lot of assumptions made about, about what it's like for that patient living with, with that condition. But one thing I've learned, and, and my children have a bleeding disorder, and so do I, it is in some of these rare disorders, it is so individualized to the patient that if there's not communication going on between the physician and, and the patient, between the physician and the payer, and quite honestly, between the patient and the payer as well, um, the patient is the one who suffers. And they're the ones who suffer the most physically, emotionally, financially, maybe even. Um, but the healthcare system also suffers because all it does is drive the costs higher for healthcare. So I really think that we are at a point where we know these changes need to be made. The drugs are here. How do we come together? in a way that everybody recognizes there's going to have to be some compromise when they get to that table. Now, that, that's a great point. I think, you know, that compromise, that that insertion points is at a head. And, and Dr. Ken, I'd love to hear your perspective on this topic. I, I don't know if I have too much to add to that. I agree with everything, but I'll say we're not doing a great job of that today. And as we get into more complex therapies or treatment, as in cell and gene therapy, all of our inadequacies are going to be magnified. So the current experience for a patient, at least in what's true and dear to my heart in the, in the MS world, is a patient hears they have a chronic illness that, quite honestly, they don't, they don't want. <laughs> and many times, they're not even convinced they have it. And they're being told by have supposedly with a relationship with their provider who they just met 
to start in this expensive, complicated therapy. And once that decision's made, they get inundated with some useful and a lot of non-useful information. And they can't, it's not fair what happens to them. They're getting inundated from the specialty pharmacy. They're getting inundated from the healthcare system that the provider is from. They're getting pushback perhaps from the payer and then the manufacturer steps in. And, and those stakeholders today work very individually and they define success and failure differently. So we need a shared voice at the beginning. I'm biased. I think it's the physician and the pharmacist and the patient who should drive the conversation. How do we define success? What is specific to you and specific to your disease? What are realistic expectations? And if I put those three, those in three different buckets, there's the disease itself and, in, and whatever that disease is, what we have to offer, what, what's success, what's realistic, what, what, can we, what, what can we do to give you the best health that we can? And then what are the monitoring or complexity of the treatment options you have and how are we going to monitor for the risks of that treatment strategy? Because there is no risk-free choice when you get into the complicated treatment of chronic illness. And then thirdly, what are the obstacles that muddy the waters? If you have depression or anxiety or other healthcare problems, so that when we fall off a successful path, we know what that is. Is it because your disease isn't fully controlled and we have to escalate treatment? Is that because you're having a side effect of the medication? Or it has nothing to do with the chronic illness. It has to do with some other aspect of your health that's interfering, whatever that might be. And I think if we can start the conversation with the pharmacist, the physician, and the patient being in the same room on those definitions, then I think it's much easier to have the payers and the other stakeholders to understand, okay, now let's infuse some economics into this, and where do we best use our money to achieve these goals? Because I can tell you there's a lot of money being spent that isn't resulting in benefit to the patient. And there's a lot of efforts going on from all these parties that are duplicated in some scenarios and then omitted in others. So I, I, to me, that's the, the vision going forward. We, we don't even necessarily all agree on what success is if we work individually. You know, no, Dr. Kat, go ahead, Michelle. I was going to say, I would like to add to uh, or respond to what you just shared, uh, Dr. Ken. I again, couldn't agree more that it really is about the um, the conversation, the um, the recognition of what are each other's drivers. I mean, I think it's important that, you know, the, the other word I use in this is responsibility. Everyone in this dynamic has some responsibility for the overall cost of healthcare, the overall impact on the patient, and I think that includes the patient as well. I, I liked your thought that, you know, it should start with the pharmacist, the, the clinician, and the patient. Uh, you know, several years ago, uh, in one of my previous uh, roles, one of the things that we did to educate patients was we created a program kind of how to be a good consumer. And it was really about who do you, you know, who is part of your healthcare pie? for example, and and who are the people that you should be talking to about treatment decisions or treatment regimens? Who are the ones that you should be talking to about safety? 
who are the ones that should be, you know, recognizing that there's different times that you engage these different members of your, of your, you know, healthcare pie. And that includes your family members that, you know, because rare disease really impacts the whole family. It, it doesn't just impact the patient. But I think that it's the understanding that everyone that comes to the table needs to recognize that they may need to make some changes to what they're doing or what they hope to accomplish. And that they all have a responsibility to do what's right with those healthcare dollars. Because I think I think you're correct, there's a lot of waste. And and all that does is you know, lead to less than optimal outcomes, but also continues to increase the cost of healthcare, which is reaching a point that I'm not sure anyone is going to be able to afford long-term. And I think one of the low-lying fruit that I think patients understand, and I happen to prescribe a fair bit of monoclonal antibodies that require intravenous infusions, you know, patients do want to participate and be successful and they know these things are expensive. It's so really simple. We don't want to be punitive. We don't want to get, if you didn't get your 10,000 steps and we're not paying for your medicine tomorrow. I mean, we don't want to be punitive or, or, or scare people, but just putting some low-lying fruit out there. For example, let's share the numbers with patients somehow. It costs $7,000 for you to go to the hospital to get that infusion. It may cost $3,200 if you're willing to go to one of these other three sites that are in your community that are outpatient settings. And we're still gonna watch and monitor and vet those people to make sure that's healthy choices. So I think there is several areas of opportunity for cost savings, some very simple, and some a little more complicated, but we do need to make sure that just making patients aware, you will find out who's interested and helpful, and it might not be everyone, but we certainly have to stay out of the world of it becoming a punitive conversation. But I think even for patients to understand the cost associated with non-adherence is huge. I mean, you just you just kind of hit on that too. You know, if you have a a healthcare um, insurer who's you know a health insurer who's willing to pay for the medications you need or the therapies you need, then it's your responsibility to follow that treatment regimen, right? You know, if you in in I'm from that that group of patients that have these infusions they need to take that, you know, can feel like sometimes it controls your life. However, if I don't take those, then I'm going to end up in the hospital. It's going to cost more while I'm in the hospital. It also takes up more of my time as a, as a, as a consumer and as a patient, you know, so really make sure I love the idea of sharing the numbers with, with patients and, and helping them understand the, cause and effect of of some of the decisions that you know we may make as patients and so i think uh it, again i think it's it it is important and i think the same way as we want to kind of share that with patients you know we'd like to see some transparency from you know through pbms and and you know other uh providers too on on cost and I think you'll see a snowball effect. I think when providers see patients take responsibility and then the patient sees the doctor, you know, taking responsibility, give more personal responses, I think it's about changing this into a much snowball and into where everyone's 
rowing the same direction. I mean, let's not have the worst case scenario where patient takes a medicine, they're not feeling good because there's some other comorbidity or depression that's entering. They misinterpret that as, well, my medicine's not working well, so why even take it when I'm supposed to? Before you know it, you're paying the entire drug bill or treatment bill, and then they're still ending up in the hospital at additional costs, and they don't feel good just because the team isn't communicating with each other. And again, defining what success looks like up front and looking at what are speed bumps look like that we can anticipate and which ones are dangerous that we have to address immediately, which ones are bumps in the road that we can navigate through, but maybe not as much of an emergency. So it, it comes to me of the entire team being on the same page and communicating as they go forward. Yeah, I, I think you guys bring up some key points that just really go down, you know, to, you know, working with, you know, key stakeholders, particularly, you know, working with biopharmaceutical companies that are looking at a market access strategy for their gene cell therapy, because it's very obviously listening even to you two talk over the last, you know, five minutes is it's inherent that there's complexity around gene cell therapies that still really haven't been defined. I mean, even you know, the biopharmaceutical companies coming to market are the challenges in the manufacturing and facilities of these type of therapies of coming to market is a challenge. Uh, besides one of the key aspects, I, I think that are, is really going to be, you know, some key milestones that I'd love to get your perspective on is, you know, come 2025, um, 2027, 2030, the amount of gene therapies that will increase and come to market are are, are going to be tripled. Right? You know, they're, they're assessing in noting that we'll have 30 gene cell therapies by 2025. That's in two years. By 2027, uh, 2030, it's going to be 70 to 80 potential gene cell therapy um, products to the market. Um, and again, the inherent complexities of understanding you know, all key stakeholders involved of coordination of that patient, but again, the complexity of just access and cost. So I, I'd like to get your perspective and just your thinking caps around, you know, we're going to see more and more of value-based or outcome-based contracting increase in these therapies just because of the unknown and limited data, especially with, you know, first-of-kind product launches in, in a rare disease gene cell therapy a class that we've never seen before. Besides, you know, Michelle, you know, we talk a lot about this, is, you know, the alternative payment models, right? The financial loan-based models, the patient assistance, the alternative, uh, alternative funding programs, What's going to happen there for patients? Um, and, and I'll attend to uh, go to Michelle first. Well, I think, again, this is kind of what I was referring to in, in we've been talking for a long time about knowing we needed to do this, but don't really, I mean, it's kind of here and we're still kind of experimenting. And, and so I, and, and I do think there's a concern with how fast these therapies are going to come out. You know, I, I have this conversation with our uh, patient community all the time that it's not, if it was just about hemophilia or just about sickle cell or, you know, there wouldn't be all of the concerns that are out there, but this is going to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people potentially that are going to be having access to these therapies. And then the question is, are these therapies really going to be curative or are they just going to be more durable long-term, but you still need some of the other therapies that currently exist? And how is reimbursement and handling of these new therapies 
really going to change access to the current therapies that patients need or to the therapies for those patients who don't qualify for these new therapies. So I think there's there's some risk for the new therapies, but also risks for the ones that are still going to be needed that 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 already exist. And so and then when you look at, you know, it makes sense to me, the the value-based approach makes sense. Where I have questions is, you know, when you look at these different um, options that are being kind of tossed around, there's, you know, whether it's between the provider and uh, the manufacturer, or whether it's between the provider and the payer, or the payer and the, man you know, so there's this whole big kind of who's all part of the agreement, but then you have to look at that variable that's not usually included in that agreement, and it's the patient. So the patient may have, you know, for example, a lot of out-of-pocket cost um, that that they pay. Well, okay, if this therapy doesn't work, it's great if, you know, the agreement between the manufacturer and, and the plan or the manufacturer and the, and the um, you know, provider okay, everybody gets reimbursed, but what about that patient who's who's already come out of pocket this large amount of money that they may not have been able to afford in the first place? The other thing is, okay, so great, I get my money back, but what does it mean if this didn't work? What does this mean to me for my healthcare going forward? What does it mean for my, you know, for my overall health? So I think there's, a lot that is being considered in these new agreements, but I think the patient isn't being included in it enough. Again, you think about how are we going to know if these therapies are are working? How are we going to know if they're safe? It's going to be if the patient still does all of their follow-up that's required. So there's a lot of responsibility on behalf of the patient, but somehow they're not being included in, in kind of that model if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And I think some of this is going to come down to patient selection, right? We can stack the odds in our favor of being successful. So is the patient actively informed of what is the risk benefit success look like with current traditional treatment that they may or may not be comfortable with, but certainly in many cases they are versus we're going down this different path with cell and gene therapy, which is complicated, very complicated. So why are you considering that? Just because it's new? Or is there an unmet need that you need to consider this new innovative treatment? It's going to take a huge amount of effort to educate the providers. I can tell you one of the biggest obstacles in the early 2000s to treating MS patients, there weren't enough neurologists interested in treating MS. <laughs> so there was a gap. You either had what we refer to as cowboys that want to use the newest, greatest thing because they're innovative, they're excited, it's cutting edge. And then you find that you're maybe overutilizing a new therapy and you may not be picking the right patients that even require that, that change. Or you have the more conservative provider who maybe isn't comfortable with the brand new cutting edge therapy and they're comfortable with the traditional amount. So how do we get patients well-informed and the providers well-informed so that we are at least, as we increase the magnitude of these new gene and cell therapies, 
selecting the patients who have the best chance and best opportunity to have success. So I get back to one of my starting points is don't take it for granted that we all just describe success the same. If you knock down migraines by 50%, you'll have a best friend forever. You knock down seizures by 50%, they don't care. Because if they still leave the house every day knowing they might have a seizure, you haven't improved their lives. So the providers, the pharmacists, and the patients need to have a better conversation, a more comprehensive conversation at the early beginnings of the of the decision point to even decide, you know, do we want to stay in the traditional path or do we need to go over to this new innovative cutting, cutting edge approach and what are realistic expectations in that world? You just hit something that that again, has been a topic of conversation in the bleeding disorder space for years. What is a cure, right? What what does a patient consider a cure? And you could ask 10 different patients and they'd all say something different, right? It may be, hey, if I didn't have to take, if I didn't have to hit a vein in infusing every other day and I could just infuse once a week, once a month, boy, I'd be happy. I, I would feel like that's a cure. Or you'd have somebody else say, oh, if I could take a pill, that would be a cure. I, you know, that's, that changes my life drastically, you know, and, and again, that's where thinking about the patient journey and understanding what is going to make the patient make that decision. And like you said, making sure it's for the right, it's with the right patient at the right time. This again, like I said, for the last eight to 10 years has been a real focus of mine is bringing these, these people together. And in my company, one of the things that that I'm working on and, and most recently did along these exact lines is bring together um, clinicians and uh, payers, including, you know, employer sponsored plans or self-insured plans. I mean, bringing bringing everybody to the table and saying, OK, here's these new products. They're out. They're here now. Gene therapy. What what is the best treatment pathway? you know, asking the clinicians, what is the best treatment pathway? How do you decide when to change a patient from one therapy to another? Or how does that patient make that decision? Oh, and by the way, what are the UM requirements or the PA requirements are going to be put into place that may cause a barrier to that? And in some of these instances, a delay in treatment is the same as a denial in treatment, right? You may cause that person to miss a window of opportunity to to do something different so it's kind of making sure that you know we like i said just recently brought together some people to look at this with respect to gene therapies and cell therapies coming out in the blood disorder spaces and said okay let's decide what do we think access is going to look like what do we think uptake's going to look like how do we think this is going to impact what we're currently seeing in the market as a clinician how do i think this is going to impact my practice and let's come back together in 12 months once the products have really been out there, had a chance for patients to learn a little more and say, where were we right? Where were we wrong? Where did something happen that we didn't even begin to think about? And how can we come together to work together to fix that moving forward? And so I'm actually having that follow-up meeting here in October of, of this year. So I'm excited to see if we've been able to see if we're able to have any insights as to, you know, are we seeing things the way that, you know, is are things happening the way we thought it would? So I think that, you know, the earlier we can get together to kind of brainstorm those things and then 
come back to them instead of just, you know, I think a lot of times we've had a lot of meetings about a lot of things and how we want to see things change. And we walk away and there's been some great dialogue and then nothing happens with that. Yeah, and I, I think one, you know, last, uh, one of the last questions I have for both of you and, and you both kind of alluded to it more, you know, uh, Ken, you, you kind of said it over and over again, and, and we've expressed this in past conversations is, again, you know, technology versus financial versus clinical are all stepping in uh, in a different way. And you know, technology advancements in the healthcare ecosystems is really advancing um, uh, besides obviously uh, new developments uh, are, are obviously very exciting and innovative. Uh, I use the term DTX, so digital therapeutics. You know, obviously this is something you and I talk a lot about. Uh, you, you note that consumer empowerment uh, needs to take place. I, I think within gene and cell therapy, we're seeing the, uh, the the push for more you know technology or digital therapeutics solutions. But again, we we see a lot of off the shelf digital solutions exist, but they really only focus on fragments of the overall process. Uh, even recently, you know, uh, Ken, you and I have been through that. So again, would like to get your insights to how DTX or digital therapeutics will evolve in this space. You know, again, we're seeing manufacturers exclusively partner with digital therapeutics company. Uh, I think we're going to see this push even more with technology advancements with consumers, grabbing information, grabbing data, grabbing the patient journey mapping with stakeholders is involved in the care coordination like pharmacists, like providers and payers. Ken? So, so thanks. So I think if we can, and I view this simplistically in three buckets again, how's your disease doing? Are we within the parameters of what we've defined, you've defined as success? What are the potential risks of your medicine? And then what are other healthcare health related issues that could be muddy in the waters? If we agree on that treatment plan and you have the physician and the pharmacist and the patient in, a, in alignment, and then you get the ball rolling. So to the extent that a digital tool can keep us on track, reminding patients did, you know, via HIPAA compliant text messaging to keep them on their schedule of when is the medicine taken? How is the medicine taken? When do we need blood work? And then if we start to veer off because something didn't get done, having automated reminders, having support messaging when things are going well, so that when you're on the right path, it's reinforced and you know it. So you're rewarded for your efforts. You get reminded that you're doing the right thing and recalibrating, we're winning. And if we have to define, redefine what success is because people have changed their journey, then we have to do that. But then if we start to get off the path into what I'll call a yellow zone or red zone that's more urgent, we have clear communication so all the stakeholders communicate and alter that treatment plan as is needed to get us back on the right path as much as possible. So really that warning sign, no different than you have the assisted driving tools now, which are awesome, but takes a while we used to. When you're going the right way in the road, you know it. But if you start to veer off, you get a little vibration in the steering wheel, a little yellow sign, you brake too fast, you get a red mark. So that when you're doing well and doing the right thing, you're getting support and you can live your life. But if you start to veer off, you get these warnings based on how urgent the solution needs to be. And to me, that's where the digital tool 
can do a lot of these things and be sort of an autopilot and let people know how they're doing, let the whole team know how, who's, how they're doing. And then based on the error or what is falling out of place, the correct people get notified in a live time fashion, whether that's the doctor, pharmacist, or the patient themselves. And then their treatment becomes simpler. You know, I, I agree. I think that, you know, everything the way you laid it out is, is kind of like the perfect scenario to be able to, to be able to track this, to be able to, you know, you got to make something that's easy for people to use. You got to make sure that everybody has access. I think there's a lot of times that we assume people have, everyone has a cell phone. Well, maybe they do, but do they have a smartphone? Not everybody does. You still have some people that have very limited um, use of, of, you know, or, or, you know, older technology. But I think the other thing is this is where I, we've been we've been looking at these kind of trackers in in the bleeding disorder space for many years. And and I remember very early on being very frustrated and sitting down with a group of pharmaceutical companies and saying, now you all have your own tracking device. This is so difficult for the clinician. It's difficult for a patient who maybe switches from one product to another, and now I have to use a different system to, to track it. You know, wouldn't it be better if this is where if we could all come to agreement on what success looks like and, and what is the kind of data that needs to be collected if we weren't all trying to outdo each other with a new tool, right? Because for the patient, I want something that I can follow. If I'm going to track this stuff for 30 years, and believe me, as a patient community who was impacted heavily by HIV and Hep C, tracking was critical for us to be able to know, you know, and, and really to find out the progression of, of, of disease and what had happened. So I want for this to be able to follow me everywhere. If I've had to go through five different tracking systems and Think of my physician's office. If there's 25 different products and all 25 have different tracking systems that are basically trying to do the same thing and all that data is coming into my provider on different platforms, is it really helping? So I think this is one of those things where it is really important for everybody to kind of come together sooner to say, how do we create something that is either very interchangeable with each other are very compatible with each other, or you know, how do we make sure that there is some consistency in this rather than, oh, hey, this company just came out with a new one for you to use, or this company came. I think that's where it becomes difficult. Um, and I would say difficult for all the stakeholders involved. You know, a, a pharmacist who's getting this information from a hundred different patients and 20 different systems. So how do we how do we find something that we could standardize a little bit better to be able to make that um, a little bit easier on everyone involved so that we're really comparing apples to apples when we need to, to try to find that real world evidence versus, you know, it, was it just reported a little differently, but it was really the same information, you know? Well, that's an awesome task. And I, I'll promise you that <laughs> we won't solve that overnight be united no different than we look at the different electronic medical records and their communication. I think step one, I think we have to get there. I agree a thousand percent. I think getting there will be a struggle. I My gut says it should be housed initially within the specialty pharmacies because 
The pharmacists are providers, so they have touch points with the patient. They're the ones dispensing the therapeutics, the drugs, so they have a responsibility. And then you just have to hope that some people lead the way and develop tools that are user-friendly, easy to collaborate and across systems, and it starts to take off from there. But I don't think we're going to start with a unified platform that's accepted by all stakeholders today. I think we have to have someone lead the way and win and do well, and then people sort of glom onto it. I would agree. I would agree. That was just my Pollyanna version of how I would well, like I agree. To we have work. to get there. Yes. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that alludes to, you know, the last topic of discussion around this and, and it really wraps it up because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, even, you know, this discussion really opened my eyes of just working with these therapy developers. They must really carefully consider the rewards and risk of entering into this market of gene cell therapy. And let's face it, you know, having an appropriate market access strategy, there is a lot to do and a lot to consider. Because uh, again, we're, we're seeing the growth of gene cell therapy, particularly in specialty pharmaceuticals, represent a, a huge radical shift in the treatment of rare disease. You know, commercialization is a constantly evolving field right now for these these players involved. And you know, I'll just kind of sum up you know key areas. You know, that when you're looking at market access strategy, working with these biopharmaceutical companies. You know, we, we really got to gather appropriate data, develop a safety profile, right? Build a compelling value story, um, uh, you know, from the product profile versus the, the patient itself. You know, again, what do we consider patient adherence and compliance to, again, what are the metrics that may indicate, you know, to you, your point, Dr. Ken, discontinuation of therapy. So, you know, again, a, a large amount of when to start, where to start, how to start, besides an appropriate commercialization strategy. I leave it to you, Michelle, and then pass it to Ken of just last thoughts around this as what are the key priorities for gene and cell therapy for pharma manufacturers face uh, this year and beyond? Because I, again, I, I said this in prior talks and prior engagements, I think come 2025, the healthcare ecosystem around gene cell therapy is really gonna hit a wall, almost get hit in the face just because Right now, there's, you know, we're, we're dealing with them, but we got, you know, 12, 15 gene cell therapies being managed in a similar channel uh, procurement way. But from when you have 30 or more, I think that's a whole new game and love your perspective on it. Well, I'm going to say, and again, this is not only the manufacturer's responsibility. Again, I believe everybody in this whole process shares in, in the... Um, in the responsibility for for you know lowering healthcare costs but again we can't ignore the cost that comes with these and and the cost that's currently existing i mean we are already seeing you mentioned earlier alternative funding mechanisms those sorts of things where you know we're starting to see that you know employers specifically in the self insured market are starting to just not cover specialty therapies. They can no longer afford to do that. And so if we don't start looking at something to control the cost, and again, I don't think it's fair to always point the finger back to the manufacturer. Absolutely. The company. There's plenty of people's, you know, along the way that are adding costs to that. I think we have to really also be looking at the distribution chain just because we think that, you know, a the value of a product is $4 million 
does that mean we should charge $4 million for it? So I think that there's that sort of conversation that happens, it has to happen along the way as well too, because I would agree with you. I think the ecosystem, I, I just think the, the, the healthcare cost in general are looking at hitting a wall in the next five years. I mean, I know we've been saying that for a long time, but if you really look at the jump in some of these therapies, it's great to be a chronic disease patient right now. There's lots of reasons to have hope. There's lots of opportunities that were not there for people before us. But to what extent, if, 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 you know, these things come out and nobody can access them because nobody can pay for them, then we're really putting a lot of waste out into the environment here. Well, my solution is keep Michelle talking on podcasts and then shining a light on you. <laughs> I agree. So one, I'll add one little thing. So traditionally, the doc drives the therapy. We can talk about shared decision-making all we want. At the end of the day, the decision is typically made in the exam room between the patient and the, and the doctor. And it's in large part how the doctor prevents, presents the information. And hopefully it's done with all the best of intentions and, and education. But the best model I've ever seen, and we've not copied it in other areas, is a tumor board. So if you're familiar with oncologists, when there's a complicated cancer, it's not one doc driving the decision. If it's complicated, they bring the case, sometimes to the patient in the room, sometimes not, and they have the oncologist, the medical oncologist, they have the radiation oncologist, and they have a surgeon there. And they present the case, and then they come up with a group decision that's best for the patient. So maybe when we talk about gene and cell therapy, it's complicated. Maybe we need a, a board. And then maybe that's a physician, a pharmacist. Maybe that's someone that represents the payer. Maybe that's, a, they, maybe that's someone who represents, you know, other stakeholders in this process. So that from the very beginning, so instead of the decision being made, patient's ready, doc's ready. Now it goes to the payer to decline it. Now everyone's upset. Even though the option number two that the payer is happy to pay for would have been just as good, the patient doesn't view that because they've already been told by their doctor what is best and nothing else can be as good then, so I'm mad. But if we make the decision with all the information available, there are many times that we might be able to navigate those waters, make a decision together from the beginning before people get their heart set on something and then have all the stakeholders aware of the information putting their recommendations. And I think not always, but I think many times we'll come to an agreement, save money, still have as good of a therapy option for the patient as possible and get off on the right foot by having an understood success action plan in place that's defined from the very beginning. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a wrap on this episode too. And again, I can't thank you guys enough, Dr. Ken Minkowski, uh, Michelle Rice. What a great episode for episode two. Uh, and again, you know, this is one of six of the Biopharmaceutical edu Educational Podcast Workshop Series uh, in collaboration with Pharmacy Podcast Network and the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. Uh, again, thank you both. Uh, great uh, episode here. A lot of learning to be done. And please, for those listeners, uh, this is one of six. Uh, we'll be uh, doing episode three in July, focus on why rare ultra-orphan therapies need early market access planning and innovation solutions. Kind of goes right in line with what we just discussed. Todd, thank you and the PPN Network.
Thank you. What an amazing conversation. We can't wait to listen to um, our next episode. If you're listening and you'd like to become involved in future podcast publications, please reach out to us at pharmacypodcast.com. That's pharmacypodcast.com or any of our social media platforms and we'll get you involved. And that's why this platform is so advancing and popular is because it's based on our pharmacists and pharmacy professionals. So we thank you for listening. Thank you.